You're listening to Oxide Film, written and directed by Matty O'Donovan and Tom Sayre. Hello and welcome to the brand new episode of Oxide Film for this term. Hello Tom. Season 2 begins here people. Season 2 does begin. I am so excited. A brand new year for Oxide Film, brand new year for loads of movies on the way. And before we start anything, we want to do a bit of thank yous for this uh, first episode. Exactly. What's so the first thank you for? Once more, thank you to all our listeners, obviously. Obviously. But thank you to Phoenix Picture House once more and Jericho for sponsoring this episode. I went and saw Joker there for this review and I really enjoyed it. Obviously, again, the places look well, lovely. It's a beautiful cinema. We strongly advise listeners to go um, check out a film there themselves. Yeah. It's a yeah. brilliant venue. You're, you're right on the money there. And it's nicely nestled away from like the centre of the city, so you can get a bit more detached from it. Enjoy a film that you want to go see in a really lovely venue. So moving on from that, what film are we reviewing this week? We are reviewing Joker, directed by Todd Phillips and starring Joaquin Phoenix as the titular. Were we really going to review anything else this exactly. week? Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's definitely generated a lot of buzz, a lot of division. Uh, we were talking about it ahead of this episode. Critically well-received audience reception's a little bit different, a bit divergent. Do you want to give a brief overview? Sure. So Joker stars Joaquin Phoenix as the character Arthur Fleck, who is a kind of mentally very unwell man lives with his elderly mother in a kind of seedy horrible part of Gotham City so yes this is a comic book movie it is very much in the DC universe and Bruce Wayne's mentioned all this stuff so we see this character working for Ha Ha's a clown company working all these bit jobs spinning signs and going to kids hospitals and eventually he's beaten up too many times he is disregarded so much that he begins his transformation into the all famous eponymous super ultra villain joker and we see his just transformation into complete madness should we listen to a clip sure thing go for it you know i do stand-up comedy you should come see a show sometime i could do that people think you're weird they don't feel comfortable around you i don't want you worrying about money mom or me all that sacrifice she must love you very much she always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. You're so funny, aren't they? So, we heard a trailer for Joker there. We couldn't actually find any clips on YouTube because the film's still very recent. But we actually thought it was quite a good idea because the film's trailers are all extremely kind of... not so much feel good, but they're preparing you for a kind of drama that affirms humanity. But this movie is grim. Yeah. It is pretty horrible, and we're going to get into that. Definitely, I, yeah. I thought it was good to start with the trailer, just because it kind of it prepares you for something maybe a bit different. And I think a lot of this film, and a lot of the reasons why the reactions were so divided, was because of expectation. Mm-hmm. And the film in itself is good, but because of so many things and presuppositions about going into it, that's why it's generated all these crazy things going on. Of course, yeah, and I I agree with you that it's totally detached in the trailers from what you end up seeing in the final product. I do remember when this film first sort of was in the making, news broke about it, it was described more on the lines of a sort of Scorsese-helmed, possibly Leonardo DiCaprio-starring fair. Mm. Um, It's come a long way since then. For me, I was probably one of those people that was a product of those expectations. I didn't have really high ones, But they certainly were galvanised by what I heard from Venice Festival a month prior. In reality, I was sorely disappointed. And I was disappointed for one crucial reason above everything else, but which splinters out into a lot of the problems that I see in this film. And that's in using the mythology of a character like the Joker, which if you're a comic book fan or just a cinema fan... Many people are familiar with what his character is, even if it's prone to various interpretations. If you use that mythology, that lore, you're naturally expecting a certain end result for how your character is going to end up, as in it's going to fit within certain parameters of what people know the Joker to be previously. This film has an issue whereby there's a dissonance between trying to show a mentally unwell character descending into this comic book character that are two very separate, almost polarising things. And I found it a bit of a struggle to try and square that circle at the end when everything comes full circle. I don't know how you felt about that. Did you feel like the mythology was treated well, treated in a sort of clever and subtle way and helped enrich the story? So I think, I agree with you mostly. I think that 
Joker is one of the most confusing movies I've seen for an extremely long time. Mm-hmm. For the reason that when I left the cinema, I just could not work out anything about how I felt about the movie. Because I, I, I kind of thought to myself, I've just seen a remarkably well-made and well-shot film with some great acting and some very interesting choices. But it was it all just actually quite unintelligent mm-hmm. and, and stupid as a movie? And then... The, the ending and kind of it does very much fulfill itself as a comic book movie I think the way especially it's marketed is it's it's I didn't think it was going to involve anything to do with DC I thought it was just going to be maybe obviously Joker is DC material yeah. but that would be where it ends so the fact that it doesn't involve the Wayne family it involves those characters and then it also involves the fact that he, he does turn into this character that's going to end up being in a different franchise and there's yeah. going to be Pattinson's Batman that's coming in a couple of years well see that's that's a matter of debate now because this is one of the issues that this film has in that being shot on a relatively modest budget, I think it was about 60 million, it was almost a passion project for its director, Todd Phillips, because he was able to pester Warner Brothers to finally make this film after previous incarnations of the joke in recent years. <coughs> Cough, Jared Leto. Uh, didn't work didn't well with him. Yeah. yeah, well, exactly, but sort of that made way for a smaller, more intimate story revolving this character. But that I, I even watch my words saying about this character because I don't think it's about the Joker. And many reviews said this film stands alone without any Joker lore and it would be brilliant. I genuinely think it would be a lot better or there'd be so much more scope and more options in uh, examining Arthur's character if he wasn't beholden to this kind of mythology. And what you mentioned about the Wayne family, even if it's only used at, in a sort of arm's length fashion, it's still very much present. And I just found it so, so difficult to match those two things in my head. And I, I'm someone who can detach myself from that comic book lore, those accuracies, those inaccuracies, to enjoy the story at hand. But what you pointed out about it feeling like it should be more intelligent than it is, I agree completely. I found it a very ugly film, really ugly film. And not ugly just because it's showing the, you know, realities of neglect and an underclass and mental health issues that aren't, you know, catered for by a society that doesn't care anymore. I found it ugly because it had nothing else to say outside of that. And when it didn't have anything else to say, it would just stylistically indulge itself in all the sort of kind of visual trickery and like fun things to look at about the Joker character. Mm. You know? I think ugly is a very interesting word to use because I guess I, I'm not I'm not extremely sensitive to this kind of thing, but when you have a film that sparks conversation, at least, about mental health, I, I'm encouraged to think about it. And this movie has a mentally ill protagonist. He's got a lot of things wrong with him. He's got... And his mother is also extremely ill. She, you know... She sort of has an unnamed illness, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it adds yeah. weight to his... And it's, and it's all... It, it's all used for a certain reason. And I think that reason is ultimately finding a way for the Joker to happen and, and not so much, look, we need to talk about mental health more because these things happen, but in the real world, there are still so many stigmas about mental health that are, are about more minor things about mental health. Yeah. Um, and I just think it really did nothing for the cause of raising awareness in a healthy way. And um, because some people were saying things about how, oh, it's a great movie because it, it shows a character with these struggles but those struggles are, are being used I think yeah. um, ultimately that is not a, a necessary fault of the movie because yeah. a director can choose that to be the case um, but when it is a movie that is kind of trying to display those things as something that's marketable about it I think then yeah. there is some fault there for sure and I think a common statement that seemed to crop up in all like critical reviews and just you know people who enjoyed the film was this film's going to linger with you. It's going to have a lasting impact. Like, I think the phrase that was most commonly used was, you're going to think about this for the next few days after you watch it. And obviously, ironically, we are thinking about it because we're trying to deconstruct it. But I felt like it had the exact opposite sensation on me in that it felt very fleeting and all the shock and impact of it dissipated quite quickly afterwards so that I could just sort of take a step back and think, what is this actually trying to say? And when I thought about that, I realised that a lot of people will say, well, look, it's talking about this man, this neglected man's relationship with the society he finds himself in. I mean, one of the meme pages that cropped up about Joker was called Joker slash society posting. So it's, it's all about society. 
But the society he finds himself in, Gotham in the 1970s, early 1980s, is this sort of larger-than-life urban dystopia in which there's, I think there's at one point in the film, news reports of super rats and there's there's just litter and garbage and whatever all over the streets and no one cares about everything, anything and everyone's disillusioned about everything else. It It was hard to grasp the importance of that because they put a massive emphasis on him being this neglected individual within that society but then we're also really keen to emphasize the fact that the joker should be this anarchic figure who shouldn't care about the society he finds himself in and that's the problem about using that uh, mythology because have you ever read a comic book about the joker or watched a film in which he's had an investment in like the poor or those who've been treated badly due to wealth disparity or due to you know discrimination on any like lines be it like race sexuality it doesn't matter what it is he's never been that champion of the people and this film goes at the end well let's make him that because he can put a smile on everyone's faces and they can live this carnivalesque existence in which nothing matters yeah so i think my confusion might stem from a similar thing for you in in the sense that after i left the cinema i kind of was thinking like I just watched a movie, but I seemingly have no thoughts about it despite having so many scenes that I was like, that's interesting, that's cool. And when it finished, I just sort of thought, okay, I don't really know where I am at all with this. So that's the kind of general thoughts, I think. Should we give a few more details? Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, I think I kind of, I was, I had notebook in hand ready to, to, you know, go crazy with it. And I think um, the, the, the two massive things to take away is that it is, as you said earlier, the Scorsese ghost lingers over the project so much, not only in terms of he could have been an exit producer, but the fact that the movie is just like Taxi Driver plus King of Comedy plus mm-hmm. Psycho. Yeah. Um, so like Hitchcock and Scorsese all kind of rolled into one. And then the very first scene, you know, Hacking Phoenix is sitting down putting his makeup on for his job and he's hearing on the radio about trash being everywhere, the yeah. garbage collectors are on strike, yeah. they're, not, yeah. they're not working. And I kind of like noted down, okay, interesting, like this is where we are. At that point in the movie, I didn't know we were in Gotham. I didn't know it was going to be Gotham, Wayne's yeah. Gotham, Gotham in the 70s. I didn't know what time frame we were mm-hmm. in. I, I, had, I had no reference. And that was kind of blissful because I was thinking like, right, the movie is now going to tell me certain things that it wants to tell me for setting up the story. And then kind of obviously later on when I found out it was Gotham, I kind of realised there are it's much more based off the comic books, which I am not familiar with in terms of The Killing Joke and other sort of stories that mm-hmm. have inspiration for the movie. So that's kind of all right and, and fine, to be honest. But I think kind of you have you have this sort of massive reference to Taxi Driver over the movie. So with the garbage being everywhere, the, mm-hmm. the streets being disgusting, his character writing in a notebook about his thoughts. Eventually down the line, he gets a gun and sits in front of a TV with a gun. Like De Niro's character practices in front of the mirror. So very kind of mirrored things going on. Um, but before we get to that point, I kind of thought that the first act set itself up so well, like I was saying, I kind of, I was invested and I kind of thought, okay, where are they going to take this? I'm, I need to watch this. I need to focus yeah. and work out what they're going to do with it. And so just before the, the, the title comes up on the screen, when he's flipping his sign on the street and mm-hmm. some kids like nick it. It's a common and, thing that comes up in the trailers quite, quite, quite mm, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And he runs after them in a kind of slapstick comic fashion yeah. in this big clown suit gets into an alleyway and they like smash the sign over him and beat him up and he's on the floor and they run away and the kind of soundtrack goes into this super orchestral mourning sound yeah. and just Joker appears on the screen. Mm-hmm. So I kind of saw that as like, that's his death scene. Like yeah. Arthur Fleck, despite using his name for a bit more of the movie, is kind of dead because that's like, that's the, that's the last moment where he's trying to live the life that he's living and he carries on trying to do his job yeah. but from that point you know something's arrived something, yeah. something has arrived as well as yeah. being arrived yeah. in his brain and he's going to start developing all these things yeah. so that's kind of the, the first bit and then he kind of you get introduced to the characters his mum yeah. that he relates with so the mum is a is really interesting to me because played uh, by Francis Conroy yeah so Joaquin Phoenix two years ago played a character in You Were Never Really Here which is Lynn Ramsey's very small movie about a kind of uh, traumatised hitman yeah. um, and he lives with his mum uh, and it is kind of has similar mental health issues that are, that are na- that for hit- that character are kind of super contained yeah. and uh, put up in a, in a really toxic way by him and you can so definitely I, see the parallels being drawn between this and something like Psycho yeah, exactly. that kind of yeah. slightly 
peculiarly intimate relationship yeah. he has with his mother. Yeah. So, so obviously the, the Norman Bates parallels are, are up there as well. But I thought it was interesting for Phoenix as an actor to go so, from two yeah. very different characters that have that sort of commonality between yeah. them that would kind of share yeah. a relationship. Yeah, um, exactly. And as we will find out later, obviously not spoiling anything right off the bat, that does have an important element into ha- the development of his character, why he is the way he is. And I, I do see the point that you're being, uh, you're making very astutely that he, his character almost from the get-go of the film is already in a state of kind of terrifying flux. He's de- you're definitely seeing some sort of shift in his mentality whereby he was just putting up with the crap he had to deal with to a point where he's starting to edge towards the liberating horrible actions he's going to do to make himself what we will later call Mm. the Joker Mm. and you know just to refer back to what you were saying about this kind of patchwork and of other films it finds itself within particularly those of Hitchcock and more pertinently Scorsese my criticism already with that is I love some of those films King of Comedy it draws massive parallels this film with King of Comedy which we can talk about a little bit more um, in a few minutes but I felt what some people see as like a clever reference to the films that have come before I felt more like it was a crutch I felt there were moments when you see his character Arthur, Arthur Fleck that is working Phoenix who might I put to the side does a tremendous job with what he's given but you see the descent of his character and you go oh I see what they're doing there. They're pointing to Rupert Pupkin and King of Comedy, or they're giving a knowing glance to Travis Bickle in in, um, Taxi Driver. But I think, where would this film be without those references? What I felt, crucially, was that first hour had a lot of potential. I liked the Gotham they found themselves in, but it's almost like you opened that can of worms and you didn't know what to do with it, because then you found Arthur in this situation, in this society, in this setting that was just awful. And you think, oh, I know where this is going to go. So you're kind of robbed of something. And I think what you're robbed of is that apprehension. And what they substitute that apprehension for is a series of spiralling, awful moments of violence. Should we touch a little bit on that? What did you think about that sort of scene? So the really funny thing is that this movie, yeah, as we say, has some very, very graphic violence mm-hmm. happening then it's not a super violent movie you know it's, it is a character it's not an action movie mm-hmm. but there's one crucial subway scene that when it starts when it starts going off is very well made yeah. like it's got some lovely handheld stuff going on which is not that common anymore in terms of you can make handheld stuff in movies but it doesn't doesn't always work yeah so yeah the subway scene is that it's probably the biggest one we can think of where he gets beaten up by these three Wayne Corporation's businessmen who are just leering and horrible. And he's, mm. he's in his clown makeup because he's just come back from a job. In which um, he's been fired. Yeah, um, he's just been and, fired. and you also see that his neurological condition, which you're made aware of earlier in the film, means that he has he's prone to these fits of, you know, un- uncontrollable laughter. Yeah, and, and, and inappropriate laughter. Inappropriate so, so, laughter, So it's, yeah. it's, it's basically triggered by any kind of anxious moment or, or any, stress any, or any something stress. like that so hence why he elicits the mocking and bullying yeah. of these men he finds yeah. on the subway so, so he's on the subway with his men like yeah. he starts laughing because he's nervous yeah. and they start sort of they, they, they think that he's mocking them yeah. um, so he he got a gun from his co-worker to protect himself after that first beating up in yeah. the film and he, he gets put on the floor and you think it's going to be just another sequence of him being beaten up yeah. and then like immediately which I think is a credit for this film in terms of the, the violence is just is immediate and, and in that sense feels realistic and in the sense that if this if this is going to go down, it's going to be really quick. Yeah. Um, so he's on the floor being beaten up, the lights are going on and off and then suddenly you hear a gunshot and one of them is just being shot in the head yeah. um, because he managed to find his gun from his pocket and he kills two of them in the subway train. The other one escapes and he kind of, what I think was possibly the, my favourite shot in the movie was when he like walks like really really straight towards yeah. the the final guy and executes him yeah. on the stairs and I think the reason why I found that so good and, and visually great and everything was partly the fact that the character is obviously stooped and mm. the physicality of fucking is great in this movie and he has a lot of you know classic hallmarks of abuse in terms of bowed head and when he's doing this he's like determined he's like immediate he's very exact yeah. he's and assertive way, I think is yeah. the and the way that he's walking is, is not robotic but like he knows exactly where he's going in a straight line and he's yeah. like right yeah he's you, you definitely sense something that something is just broken in him because you know like a, another film might choose to for him to sort of fight or flight situation kill the first two and 
be horrified about what he's done and allow the third one to cool off. But this is like, bang, it's yeah, happened. Yeah. This is the breaking point. And finally, we see a movie that pays service to the gunshot ringing thing. He's just shot three people quite close to his ears. And for at least, you know, a, a good 20 seconds or something, we have like a painful ringing yeah. that, that is, that it just works really well. And then like, once that's over, then he, he, that is kind of the definitive act that ends up being something that sparks basically kind of city-wide riot but also obviously it sparks inside him a sense of complete liberation yeah. so after he kills them he kind of runs out of the subway runs away for a bit finds this kind of like abandoned building it's a toilet I think it is, is it yeah, a yeah. Oh, okay. yeah right, it is yeah. and he does the weird sort of dance uh, yeah. and he kind of does this beautiful yet yeah, liberated Ballet, form, I found form, yeah, ballet, yeah. formless dancing. There's a lot um, of dancing in this film. There is, a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of that expression, and I, I've I've been someone over the past couple of years. I've kind of learnt that dance is an extremely important thing, yeah. and it's a really important expression. And obviously, it can be an art form, but but I guess for me, it, it's just a really beautiful thing to 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 relieve yourself with. But I, th- I think the crucial thing is he doesn't care. You know, I mean, the, the, like, there's already been like jokes thrown around on the internet about like the dancing scenes and stuff like that. But it, it's important because it is, it is that liberating kind of act that allows him to just let him be himself. And it's, it's, this is where the film has a moment of confusion where you're not sure as to whether or not these guys that have been bullying him on the subway are the catalyst for revealing his true character or if they're the breaking point for someone that's unwell. And I don't think there's a clarity in that in the following 20-30 minutes after the scene happens mm-hmm. because in a way completely unlike something like Taxi Driver in which all of the like really intense violence happens in that final third where by like Travis Bickle shoots up the brothel and saves Jodie Foster's character or tries to and, and all of the sort of horrendous stuff is all built up to that final scene. This is like end of first act kind of moment and then you see actually his life gets quite healthier at least in a certain way like as in like he's more assertive he starts interacting with Zazie Beetz character or well I should say he thinks he's interacting with her but the thing being is that he has that I think the crucial word liberating attitude after this really horrendous moment of violence but the difficulty is it's really hard to keep that kind of momentum once you have something like that and I think momentum is something this film struggles with at times Mm. particularly after that moment though what I will say is seeing him get beat up it was one of the moments earlier in the film where I felt a strong pang of sympathy or should I more accurately say pity and I I did that started started to fall apart later on sure and I think later on it does become I guess for some people the point is that you become less sympathetic to him a lot of reviewers have said that he is meant to be a disgusting character. And I actually didn't quite get that myself. I thought this is all a product of horrible stuff. Um, but I think that there are there are still things to say in terms of, you know, general movie structure or kind of how to put together a movie in terms of the soundtrack and everything else. So the, the, the music is always playing when Arthur's thoughts are kind of at the most forefront. So when the action's happening, there's nothing. Yeah. Uh, and, and then it, it comes back after he sort of comes to his senses in, in that sense. So to, to mention Zazie Beetz's character, who's a kind of single mum who lives on the same staircase yeah. of this horrible building that he lives in, um, he thinks he starts dating her, yeah. and he finds out that he's not, and she hasn't been around when he's done various things. I love that. I really, really enjoyed that. Because um, there's there's a film by Shane Meadows called Dead, Dead Man's Shoes. I think I've recommended it before. Uh, and I apologise for spoiling it, but I think it's important to draw a parallel here. In that film, you find out that the main character, played by Paddy Considine, is actually, near the end of the film, you find out he's avenging his brother's death um, at the hands of a group of supposed friends of his brother. His brother has um, a learning difficulties and has been taken advantage of while Paddy Considine's character has been in the army. And the whole sort of twist is that for the majority of the film, you think that his brother's with him, because he, he's sort of always in the frame, he's talking to him, but you later find out at the end that's all him just been talking in his head and it's those, it's that classic moment in films that like even if you're super cynical or think you've got your wits about you you get lured into the perspective of the uh, the protagonist and you think that they're reliable and at that point when you find now that Zazie Beetz's character isn't dating him or isn't supporting his behaviour 
I thought, wow, this film is going to go in a really intriguing direction. Okay, fair enough. I thought it was horrendously obvious and kind really? of bad. Basically, <laughs> so we have very, this, yeah. is, this is probably the point that we have the biggest dis- disagreement. Yeah. Um, partly because I think, I mean, maybe 10 minutes before we find out that it's all fake and he hasn't been mm-hmm. seeing her and when he shows up at her apartment, he, she's like, please leave, I don't want you here. So, so then he knows, like, okay, she hasn't been around the whole time. Um, I think up to that point, I was still thinking of the movie as like, it, it's given us so few cues to believe that anything we're watching is real, which I thought was skillful in terms of, you know, it can decide to show us whether certain things are real or not in terms of, you know, there's, there's a dream sequence, daydream sequence, where he gets on the Murray Flank, Franklin show, which yeah. is De Niro's character as a comedian. So that's, that's another mm. massive... There, there is there is fantastical elements, yeah. yeah. I, I, so I, I so he imagines that. him at the, at the comedy mm-hmm. show and Murray being lovely to him and saying, like, you are clearly a lovely guy and whatever um so there are fantasy moments and i kind of thought the movie was gonna just keep that on running instead of uh, and so so i kind of thought yeah like i mean it's definitely possible that when he starts dating this woman it's not really going to be real um but but do you find do you find the case then because like i enjoyed that like that twist that revelation quite a lot but that didn't mean i enjoyed the film in general so i'm sort of taking a devil's advocate view when i say this but don't you find that the sort of gritty substance of like the murders he carries out is a good contrast to thinking that everything can be fantastical or did you think that because you see that early scene where he has that kind of fantasy that he's on the Murray Franklin show that it was going to pay dividends later on because it, it, that there's a tonal kind of shift there you know that most of the bulk of the first act is very keen to point out that his existence is awful it's mundane and it's very much real so I think basically um, the issue I have with the whole revelation about does he beat this character is that when it does happen, the music is just a bit too much. It's like it's like really blaring, and then I think that's obviously. So I've said before, it's that's to do with like his thoughts being the loudest. Yeah. So in that parallel, that's all right. But I think it just it basically felt like the twist came, and then it was too played up. It was like, look, whoa, no, like she what she was never there. Like oh my gosh, like do no you think way. do you think what um, what all of these films do with the sort of uh, oh god this is a really bad way of putting it but the greatest hits replay of the scenes in which she's shown actually not to be there was that the kind of tipping point it, where, it, was, yeah. it was partly that and partly just kind of yeah the, the, the fact that the film is trying to show you like this is a really important moment for his kind of falling apart I think partly like before then he was already falling apart anyway so he didn't need it that much okay. um, but yeah I mean I, I just I just think it was this is what I was saying a bit earlier when it was unintelligent I feel like I was maybe expecting a movie that was going to play with these themes of reality and everything and just leave you to think about it and not ever explicitly state it. That's obviously my take and my and my thing to go over because that's my expectation and I can't blame the movie for that. But when it did happen, I just kind of thought it was, okay, I don't really need to see this. Yeah. I, I'm quite a big stickler for respect of the audience and yeah. respect of the audience's intelligence. So when that kind of thing happens in the movie, I just kind of feel like, you're not trusting everyone to kind of carry on being like, oh yeah, I see what like I see what's happening, and you, you have to, it feels like a movie that has to show everyone what's going on at all yeah. times and to kind of make you realize that this is real and not real. And I, I was hoping that I wouldn't that wouldn't be the case, basically. So speaking of moments of sort of fantasy and delusion, then that's probably a good way to move on to another key aspect of kind of Arthur's journey to this this descent into Joker, which is his sort of relationship or connection with Thomas Wayne and the Wayne family because Wayne Thomas Wayne is supposed to be emblematic of some sort of white saviour a man of wealth who's going to pull the residents of Gotham out of this kind of dilapidation and deprivation that they find themselves in but also we get inklings of a sort of more personal connection between Arthur and Thomas Wayne in the form of him basically believing him to be his uh, son now, a few weeks before the film came out, I kind of stumbled across this so-called spoiler, though obviously it doesn't turn out to be the case. Um, and this is one of those nexus points in the film that is I find quite difficult to appreciate because I like the fact that they were evasive about the idea of him being his son. They didn't tie it too concretely to this one character. But equally, because they tied the Wayne family in. They felt, I feel like Todd Phillips and the creative team felt obliged to give them more of an, of an involved role within this story. 
And so when you have the scene uh, probably about two thirds of the way through in which Arthur goes to Wayne Manor and he stumbles across Bruce Wayne, who is of course the actual child of Thomas Wayne, and he's upset that this child has had an upbringing that he hasn't, only just to have a prior revelation that he'd been abused as a child. I thought, well, that revelation that he's been abused, that is like a linchpin of having a really serious and intelligent discussion about mental health and the difficulties and harms of a child being neglected and being hurt and how that has a lasting enduring factor but then you immediately tie it to this sort of wider story about parental lineage and the Wayne family and it felt like the most discordant moment in the film whereby you could see the two directions it was being pulled in one to talk about Batman and the comics and then another to actually talk about abuse and because it was caught in between it never quite nailed either one of them yeah I, I definitely agree there and I think to, to just uh, push the reality point a tiny bit further to tie this in with uh, a scene where Arthur goes into this kind of film house and pretends to be like a kind of lobby boy yeah uh, where, where all of Gotham's elite are watching mm, this, this uh, uh, a slapstick movie I think it's um, um Modern times, that was it. I think it was it. So yeah, and, and so obviously we kind of have all these parallels with slapstick in this movie, where kind of the so, some of the action is slapsticky in terms of when he gets beaten up and <laughs> when he's running. These very slapstick moments and kind of the, the the comedy of the Joker is definitely there. So to go back to this scene, he goes to the bathroom to f- try and find Thomas Wayne. Yeah, and he finds him there, and he kind of takes off the clothes and kind of it's just Arthur Fleck in kind of normal, you know, home clothes, and everyone yeah. else is in black tie. And he talks to Thomas Wayne at the sink, and Wayne is like you are not my son, your mother was crazy, whatever. And then kind of like, Wayne punches him and then leaves. And that whole scene just seemed so completely artificial in terms of the surroundings. It, it just looked like he was out of place. And it just looked like it was going to be an illusion, a dream, or, or like or kind of he was finding out yeah. through a dream that all this was true. And so when it just kind of, when the film seemed to be saying, yeah, this is happening, I kind of thought, right... Yeah. Um, just because th- that whole sequence was just so weird. Like, yeah. How is he going to get in that building? I I, I really hate nitpicking movies, so I, I'm not going to do it here. But yeah. it, it kind of actually referring it back to the trailer, you see him punch Arthur. You see Thomas Wayne punch him, and you you probably think as a shorthand before even seeing the film that this is something in his mind, or it's some kind of sort of far out scene. And that that's the issue. It's the marrying of the the disgusting at times horrible realness of having to deal with some really difficult mental health issues and not having anyone to rely on and also being in this quite far-flung situation in which you're talking to like who Thomas Wayne who a beast story in this uh, film is is that he's running for mayor and and I just I just really hated how discordant it was because I think it only augmented itself the more and more he descended into becoming the Joker uh shifting on from that so the big climax, I guess you could say, in this film is his live appearance on the Murray Franklin show. Arthur Fleck's live appearance on the Murray Franklin show. We find that a previous episode of the Murray Franklin show is airing and it shows a clip of Arthur with his failed stand-up and you know his laughing condition, meaning that he's like the butt of the jokes in of himself. Murray Franklin uses it to generate laughs on his show and then Arthur gets reached out to because they want to continue mocking him but obviously he wants the opportunity to be on the show so as we see him descend more into becoming the joker killing some of the people he worked with at the what would you call it clown agency the ha-ha's as you mentioned um there the parallels with king of comedy are so pronounced and there's one scene i just wanted to mention robert de niro's character in the king of comedy rupert pupkin is this sort of delusionally ambitious comedian who will go out of his way to make sure he gets onto the live show much in the same way that Arthur Fleck is invited onto it. Now there's a shot, almost shot for shot uh, remake of a scene in which Arthur is sitting down, obviously he has a gun in this situation, but he's sitting down and he's preparing himself for how he's going to greet Murray Franklin and the guests and they do the exact same thing in The King of Comedy but it's crucially you don't know, you don't have a behind the scenes understanding of why Rupert Pupkin is like the way he is. You just see the end result of him going on and kidnapping the presenter and and then getting an opportunity to go on the show. Whereas at that point in the film in Joker, you know why Arthur is doing this. You know that he's mentally unwell. And I thought this was interesting because this is like a different perspective on a quite already interesting scene that we found in The King of Comedy. 
because the parallels continue when he goes on to the Murray Franklin show, you're going, well, surely they're going to do something different here. And then at that point, they're caught between references to the King of Comedy and also making sure this is true enough to the character of the Joker that it doesn't feel weird, that the conclusion is so unsatisfying. Mm. What do you think of the conclusion yeah. of the film? So, yeah, so obviously we get to the point where he kills Mario on live TV yeah. and then is taken away from the station by the police. Then there's basically, from that point, riots are happening. His, his murder of this three Wayne associate businessmen who are kind of obviously six-figure people yeah. sparked yeah, citywide riots, like I mentioned earlier, and he eventually manages um, to get out of the police car because rioters kill the police and he, and he kind of rises... He has this, you know, Phoenix rebirth. Or Phoenix puns, yes, good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, Phoenix rebirth on top of the police car and everyone's cheering around him. <laughs> so at the Murray Franklin show bit, I thought it was so interesting how he, he confesses to the murder on, on live TV. <laughs> and then we sort of see Murray Franklin's character have this kind of weird morality moment where he kind of, he seems to think to himself, okay, I can make money out of this. I'm, I'm going to ask him more about it because people are going to watch my show people are going to be like here wait wait my fucking show right now has this guy converting to the murders so yeah. he's, he's going to start leaning into it but then the conversation becomes one of morality and then my fucking is like but I don't I agree with your ethics here and it becomes this like really weirdly pronounced moral discussion that is just really obvious and weird and it, it, exactly um, that, that, that's the issue I have with this because when you know that he's going to go on to the show, you know, uh, I mean, I put you probably had a similar feeling that there's going to be some form of violence that's going to be carried out on this. Mm. But I just thought, when he gets up onto the stage and after he introduces himself and the sort of weirdness and nervous laughter of the audience of seeing this guy in his clown makeup subsides, I think, okay, so if this is the birth of the Joker, what does he say? What does he say in this situation other than what they chose him to say, which was basically describing everything that had happened in the film up until this point. So the idea of the Joker as a character, irrespective of this film, you would never really understand or believe him to be someone who'd be like, you're always, excuse my language, but you're always shitting on the, the, the small guy on the street and you don't know what my life is or you've never had my experiences and you've always had this privilege. And I thought the parallels with King of Comedy were interesting because at that point in the King of Comedy... What ends up happening is Rupert Pupkin, Robert De Niro's character in that, manages to go onto um, uh, Jerry Lewis's show and he delivers a really good stand-up set. And the ending of that film is that he actually goes on to be quite famous and he's sort of assimilated into that society. Whereas this film's never going to do that. But as a result, what they did instead was they had Joker be this quite moralistic, didactic person. Even though everything up until this point, he's made it painfully clear that he isn't like some champion of the people. He's just a man that's been treated awfully by the society he's in. So they, they wanted to have their cake and eat it, and it didn't work mm -hmm. because they were using this symbolism of the Joker. And that is the fundamental problem with this film. Stop indulging in the mythology if you want to tell a serious tale about someone who's been mentally damaged and harmed and mistreated just so you can have a cool ending in which he like puts the blood from his lips and turns it into a smile that's not clever that's not smart that's obvious yeah. you know so, so to, to fit the run up the, the the comedy show sequence bit is is just really clumsy because like you say it's just not what the character would do and and as you said earlier on he's meant to be apathetic he's meant to carry on yeah. telling these dumb jokes like really dark awful not not jokes yeah. that people said that's not funny and so that kind of ends really weird, and then he kills Murray. Um, but what was so, but what was kind of so sad was obviously to see like Hakim Phoenix doing so insanely well this whole movie. He he has yeah. this amazing physical grace that's so weird, and like there there are scenes where he seems half naked, like putting on his boots, and his whole his whole skeleton is just it looks deformed. Yeah. And I, I wasn't sure if they CGI'd it because it did look so weird. But it's, it's, it's similar to Christian Bale and the yeah. uh, Machinist, like kind of like yeah. ridiculous and that, levels. That movie is that movie is that he's scary in that. Yeah. To be honest. But with this movie, he kind of he has this sort of almost alien moments that are beautiful, and then also these feminine moments where when he's daydreaming on the yeah. sequence of Mary Franklin. Childlike moments yeah. as well. So so I kind of I saw it as childlike, yes, but very much like this feminine version, which yeah. is very, very normal mm -hmm. Bates. Like super, super normal Bates where like the, he he's saying like I'm a good boy, I live with my mum basically. Yeah, yeah. Um and then on the real show, he's saying like, 
I don't like you, Murray. Yeah. And he's doing this kind of like strangely God, that like... Was, that was chilling. That was, <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, he's no, but I, I, I get what you doing mean. Doing this kind of camp version yeah. that, is the, that is the joke and that's kind of cool. So yeah. you have that. And then it's like, this is what you get when you when you mistreat yeah. people. So it, it just it, clashed it, 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 it's, it's, yeah. it's such a like weird roller coaster of character like traits and minutes, quirks. Yeah, minutes. and it, it doesn't work because like someone might hear this and what we're talking about and go, oh, well, what your, what your main complaint is, is that it's not true enough to the Joker. But I'm like, I don't have the authority on deciding what the interpretation of the Joker is. What I don't like is when it's such a, like, hodgepodge of so many different interpretations wrapped up in some sort of bow that it's like, well, you've got to learn to smile. Don't use the greatest hits without exploring the depth behind it. And I think that final scene is a confused mess. It's a confused mess. And... This is the difficulty in when I was thinking about this film as well, is that when I, when people ask me what I thought about it, the only thing I could give initially was, I don't love it. And that's because there are certain scenes that do indulge in the Batman lore that I thought, well, we haven't had a good version of that in a long time, so this is a good Batman scene, but it's not good for this film. So the last scene I think I'll mention is, as the rioting is going on... Um, right at the end, and the joke, as you said, becomes a symbol for defiance and craziness and whatever um though i'm very reluctant to use that term because that's this whole film supposed to get past just the term crazy you have one of the writers go and kill bruce wayne's parents and that's the catalyst for batman and i was like that's a really good reason for why bruce wayne would's parents would be killed but it shouldn't be in this film and this whole riot shouldn't exist because the joker is either this loner this like this lone source of anarchy this prince of crime whatever you have it is or he's Arthur Fleck gone too far you know what I mean and I, I just I hated it I thought it was muddled it was just uh. so, so, I, so I thought it was fine for the fact that he killed the three guys to, to spark the riots yeah. and the fact that I thought it was okay for him to be cut to enjoy the performative part of it and, and sort of seeing that he that he started it but then when it goes further and then he becomes when he becomes like the champion which he says that he's not <laughs> on the show being like yeah look um this is what you get when you cross a bad society with a mentally ill donor. It's what he says, I think, on the show. Yeah. It, it just doesn't work. So I think to, to wrap up with it, I think yeah. we were both, in some senses, disappointed, but maybe in different ways. I, because of my expectations that it was going to be a sort of super subtle character study that was marketed as, and everyone was talking about it as this character mm-hmm. study. And, and all I could think was, watching the movie in the second and third act, it's trying so hard to be a... a mega ultra non yeah. comic book movie in a similar way that Dark Knight series is obviously comic book movies but like does the non comic book movie thing well because it's really fun and has those characters but nothing else really mm-hmm. and it's so this this movie I think is marketing itself and, and it's being talked about as all these things but it just is a comic book movie yeah. because you have those Wayne scenes and Wayne's parents being killed yeah. because you have him finding out from Wayne that he's not his dad because you have the kind of joke of like being reborn at the end yeah and that the the blood smile stuff so it doesn't escape that it and it can't so so i i, I do think that it on the mental health side of things it is still uh fetishization yeah. which is very sad to me because yeah. like it 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 does cracking finish does so much for like showing this like horrible horrible pain yeah. of, obviously his condition is, is part of that where he's laughing and like in some scenes it's hurting him like he's kind of it's a brilliant performance yeah. it's a brilliant performance yeah. so you have that and then you have the fact that it's being used yeah. as I said before making the audience think or trying yeah. to get it to stay with them for days when for us too it, it didn't because it felt like really vapid and this is where we get to Todd Phillips the director Yeah. so he did the Hangover movies that I haven't seen and I really need to watch them actually to get. You can just reference. watch the. You can watch the first one yeah, and, 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 be d- and be done with it. And I think, it, despite having not seen the movie, I can kind of, I can imagine what commode means when he says this movie. It, it makes a whole ton of sense that Todd Phillips is the one to have directed this movie um, because it's kind of it's sort of grotesque and everything and mm-hmm. kind of and it's all on, not all on the surface but kind of it's it's all in your face yeah. and again I, I was hoping that it was going to be something that was not that it was kind of playing around with you never know what's real you have these dream things that aren't spelled out as being dreams and all this stuff so again it's, that's a personal thing it, it's I'm going to say that now obviously it's it's not the film's fault that it can live up to that just because I kind of had a false yeah. expectation of that but again it's a movie that's sparked so much of this stuff and 
for a few reasons because it is stylistically great it looks great and it has some beautiful things going on but I think if it were about a different character and yeah. not Joker then it wouldn't just be garnering all this attention I, I think I think drawing the comparisons of the Dark Knight is interesting because I'm not discrediting the valuable use of the superhero genre to explore wider themes but I think what makes them saw in the Dark Knight and even the Dark Knight Rises which I quite enjoy is that they take it on their own terms they, they use the characters the themes to take a different perspective explore it in a different universe that this is kind of caught in a weird limbo between wanting to assert this kind of gritty character study element and is really benefited from a stunning performance from Joaquin Phoenix. I can appreciate the performance if I don't like the overall film. The difficulty in assessing this film and like the use of that mythology, lastly, is that for Todd Phillips to have made this film in the first place, he was had to use the concept of the Joker to get off the ground and consequently to generate any kind of buzz. So like it's it's that classic question of would a fraction of the people have seen this film if it wasn't to do with the Joker? But they they shouldn't have to if it doesn't do a good job exploring that theme. Mm. So I think that's a good place to leave it. Disappointed, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, but for many yeah, different again, reasons. Again, the funny thing is, so many great things about this movie. I, I quite like the soundtrack. I thought that the shot composition was great. The colour palette yeah. was great. Harkin Phoenix was awesome. And some of the action was really great. But it's um, not the sum of its parts, I yeah, don't think. Yeah, it's not and, at all. And, I, I, and if it wants to go for that character study or exploring mental health issues, it missed the mark for me. But on that note, I thought we'd move on just briefly to a relevant discussion, or rather our favourite iterations of the Joker. Mm. Because... As I said, the references back to, and as you mentioned yourself, references back to the Killing Joke, other versions, be they cinematic or otherwise, has meant that this character has a very, very rich history, you know, just as long as Batman has had one. Do you want to give me your favourite on-screen slash animated slash whatever interpretation of the Joker mm. that you've seen and or enjoyed sure. and or played? Because there's many versions True. of games. So I guess I, I'll go for comic first. So I've, okay. I've only really read Dark Knight Returns and Joker in that is great like it has it has this like scene where he gasses a whole like live show oh, yeah, yeah. Um, very fitting so, for this but very yeah. very fitting and I think there, there is some inspiration from that as well because he doesn't kill audience members but um, so that's really fun I, I'm yet to watch the second part of Returns um, so that's really fun I have a feeling that I'd love Nicholson Jack Nicholson's <laughs> one the most if I saw it um, but obviously I had to kind of be quite I had to be fairly generic and, and do say Heath Ledger just because he, he's a company he's amazing but he is accompanied by a film that slots him in so well yeah. and, and he wreaks havoc so beautifully because of what how the film is able to structure itself around him and it has these brutal moments and it has the, the painful moral moments that this film obviously this film is not trying to be that and it's very different and I think Hacking Phoenix was really great but I think I want to contextualise it in the whole movie generally yeah. and I do think you, 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 you found Ledger slotted in better yeah, within, the fa- within the fabric and I think yeah. that is also testament to Christopher Nolan's writing yeah. in terms of embedding yeah. such a great performance into the uh, 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 like I said the fabric of what the themes of this that film were about and that's a, that's a great uh, great interpretation yeah. and Jared Leto um, gets <laughs> an damaged unfair, across like, his forehead yeah, <laughs> an unfair rap because obviously like the, the, the costume or whatever design and the makeup design is like not amazing. The, the hot topic, look. yeah. I don't think he was terrible. Yeah, I think he was all right. But everyone just hated it so much that he was buried underground. Um, he, I, he doesn't deserve. I, that, I found his you know. performance disparate. I felt I found it all over the place. I, I I felt like he felt as if the energy of the Joker was enough to carry him, and also carry the very awful script of Suicide Squad. So I I know that breeds a bit of contention among people, and very fittingly, he expressed a bit of disappointment at I, I guess the success of Joker this this new film in that he's no longer I guess continuing as that the DC's official version of the character but those are some really good suggestions my ones would be well, I've, I've got to pay good service to Jack Nicholson for what he established um, in the Tim Burton films um, I, I think it's a very unique take uh, the, him and Cesar Romero both went on a slightly campier side but very befitting of their time periods 
Heath Ledger, I don't think there's much more to say. I think it's, it's, it's almost divine consensus that people love Heath Ledger's performance. I'm, I'm going to throw one slightly obvious one and one left-field option. The left-field option is Zach Galifianakis in the Lego Batman movie because he, he plays this sort of iteration of the Joker, which is obviously child-friendly, but is also about the fact he's very codependent on his existence with Batman mm. as in in order for him to have any purpose he always has to be at odds with him and there's all these meta jokes within that film about like their constant clashing over the years and, and like Zach Galifianakis will be like oh I see you found a new best villain to fight with and stuff like that and I love that I thought that was a very silly but very true to form take on, on the Joker and the second one to wrap things up is someone we haven't spoken about Mark Hamill uh, I think as the definitive conceptualization of what the Joker can be both in animated form and in games, his laugh is second to none. The Joker laugh for Mark Hamill is superb and also, though it was slightly before my time his take on the Joker for both Batman the Animated Series and subsequent sort of film, feature films and animated versions and stuff, it's just nothing tops it. It's just so perfect and it's, it just, it ticks all the boxes for the maniacal kind of crazed spirit that the Joker is, all the while fitting within a slightly silly comedian designed to entertain personality that the Joker's warp take is based around. So I really like that and also he does a great job in the Arkham games. It's just, it's brilliant. So Mark Hamill for the win. Fair enough. Um, so since it's the first episode mm-hmm. from being back from the summer, we thought we'd just give people a couple of things that we watched over summer, not necessarily from this year, but things that we happened to watch and really, really enjoyed. Yeah. So should we do a couple each or something? Yes, yeah. perfect. Um, one of the films that did come out this summer that I did actually enjoy was uh, Pain and Glory by uh, Pedro Amavador. Um God, I hope I didn't butcher his name there. But uh, the point being is it generated a lot of critical appreciation. It follows the creative block slash depression slash hypochondria of its main character played by Antonio Banderas who is a sort of famed cult Spanish director who is kind of struggling with where he takes his life in his sort of twilight years uh, it's a very intriguing portrait of his life both as a an adult but also as a child um, and it's a very touching examination of his love life uh, in a way that I don't want to spoil and which the ending has a real sense of beautiful sentimentality to it that is very in short supply these days uh, I've loved films that he's made before I really like Bad Education and he is a director that just always delivers Pedro Amador and Antonio Banderas is superb in it and there's a, almost um, a real life parallel between their relationship and the relationship that Banderas' character has with an actor he previously works with. So that's all I'll say. Okay. It'll probably be out on DVD soon. Give it a watch. Yeah. It's excellent. Pain and glory. Sounds good. Okay, so my first uh, pick will be American Animals. Mm. Uh, Bart Layton, 2018. So it's a kind of docudrama about a real art heist in 2003 in Kentucky. I won't say what the art heist is about. but um, So we've got Evan Peters, uh, Blake Jenner, and Anne Dowd as the librarian Betty Jean Gooch, um, who actually ends up having a significant role in the movie. Yeah. And all the real-life guys who took part in the crime, so, like, all the criminals who, like, have served the prison sentences and now, like, living their lives, appear in the movie in documentary segments that divide the kind of Ocean's Eleven-style heist planning um, from their own segments. This movie is amazing. Yeah. It is so, so good. In so many ways, it basically weaves loads of truth with fiction stuff. It constantly questions you what can you know about the narrative so they do fictionalise the heist a bit and, and how it went down and how they prepare mm-hmm. for it but the whole point of that is that the, ma- the, the real life guys when they're asked about what happened they can't remember it that well and they often say that they refer to how one of the other characters saw things Yeah. so, so the kind of all like, post truth age stuff comes out um, and, and it sort of weaves that truth and fiction fun stuff and yeah. really really slick amazing not action but kind of you know, action-centric scenes, which are delivered so well and are just are super slick and have the beautiful kind of heist yeah. stuff going on, with this painfully human drama that is that centres on the librarian um, yeah. later on in the movie. That is, it's 
like horrible. Like like once you once the movie, the movie takes this like drastic turn in the like final twenty yeah. minutes, which has like much more regret and pain and stuff. No, it, no. it is a catastrophically overlooked movie. Yeah, like it did well in the box office, but not mm-hmm. amazingly. And it was just brilliant. Like I I cannot. There's nothing wrong with it. The acting was brilliant. The editing was amazing. How they weaved this documentary stuff with yeah. everything else was just so cool. I really implore people to watch it because it's kind of a great, great yeah. um, study in like how to make an interesting movie and, and have a, a core that is a personality of, of, of a movie it's of, of its own. It has references, obviously, to things like Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. But it crafts this just brilliant narrative. It's, that, it, it, it's, uh, yeah. be, it's been on my list for a while, and I, after that recommendation, I'll definitely give yeah. it a watch. Amazing movie. I, yeah. I, I do like Strive's towards creating new forms of authenticity in those kind of films. Interestingly, you, you just briefly mentioned uh, Ocean's Eleven and I saw uh, a fact fact for the episode about that is uh, the security team at the Bellagio where that film is shot, the final scenes, they actually let the film crews have access to their surveillance cameras to add like a new dimension of authenticity. Oh wow, okay, yeah. that's cool. But um, that's a really good choice because it links to my second choice sure. this week. Uh, which is, um, I had a chance, really, my Japanese cinema is, is very... Same. Yeah. I, I need to watch audition. Uh, yeah. But so, in the same vein of that kind of relying on other people's perspectives, post-truth kind of idea, I watched um, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. And now Rashomon's entered into the popular pantheon, or just language, sorry. Rashomon's entered into like the common parlance to actually mean conflicting accounts of the same thing happening and that's because this film follows the robbing and alleged rape of a samurai and his wife in the uh, woods in i think it's like the 1940s is when it's set and the whole thing is it's the narrative is retold through four different perspectives all with conflicting details about what happened and you at the end get this sort of oh like patchwork understanding of what actually happened but through the sort of personal prejudices and like vices and greed and aspirations of the characters involved it's wonderful it's so iconically pivotal to the development of perspective cinema of narratives about what we were talking about the joke about unreliable narrators Rashomon any cinephile needs to see it if they haven't already I'm really disappointed in myself that it took so long to watch it Give it a watch if you can. You give it a watch, Tom, if you haven't. Yeah. Rashomon. Yeah. Sounds good. I'm a sucker for the kind of... The narrator's reliability yeah. sort of thing. So you get loads of that stuff. In kind of get that in literature as well. It's such a common yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so I'll go for one more. And yeah. I'll go for uh, The Player, which is Robert Altman, 1992. So Tim Robbins, before Shawshank Redemption, plays as Hollywood's judo exec who starts receiving death threats from a disgruntled writer who he apparently has kind of brushed off because he, his job is basically like receive pictures for scripts and yeah. like thinks about them. It's a really funny film, yeah. and like really quite daring as well. Mm-hmm. So, it's a properly jet black cynical comedy about yeah. a, a ultimately kind of a bad guy ending up on top, and th- there are kind of shock narrative moments that happen, and one in particular kind of halfway through the movie that makes him reconsider his life, and and he ends up kind of becoming a bit different character because of this one thing that he does, and it's just so it's it's just so hilariously self destroying because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's you know it's a Hollywood movie I think it's Paramount um, possibly or, or one of the big studios um, about the fact that the studio people who are involved are all these kind of like lazy like laid back people who have breakfast brunches all the time mm-hmm. at these at these high flying restaurants and talk about oh who's going to replace me this like this guy wants to replace yeah. me he's making these kind of movies Some weird, weirdly into the corporate yeah. kind and of it's all culture. about this kind of authenticity of filmmaking yeah. and, and what it's like to be a hack and what it's like to be fake and it was just, I thought it was like hilarious how that movie was was made in its time. Yeah. Um, and like you know these big studio execs are, are still a thing, but back like back then would have had such a say in what would have been produced. And it has this like absolutely hilarious, almost nearly M. Fulani with like this fake movie that gets made um, with like Bruce Willis and Jodie Foster or something. Yeah. Which is like the the reverse of everything they've been trying to establish as like making authentic films. Yeah. Um, and it was just great. I mean, I, I don't have much wrong with it. I thought, like, it kind of... It tries a bit too hard sometimes to, to be the film that it is being. Yeah. Um, because it just works so well. But, yeah, that's check a, it out. That's an excellent recommendation. Yeah, I've seen that as well and couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Robert Altman is a, was a talented, talented presence. 
Uh, should we end things there? For our first episode back and hopefully the first of many to come this term and throughout this year. I'm very excited for this year. So season two of Oxide Film Season two, yeah. Underway. Better than first season. That's what they say. The sophomore effort is always the best one. <laughs> uh, can we just repeat again, big thank yous to The Picture House for selling us out with those tickets and for sponsoring this episode. We're always really grateful. Like we said at the top of the episode, great venue. Please do check it out. Just situated in Jericho, not far from this studio actually. So just have a little walk down that way. Check them out. They're great people. Great venue. Other than that, I think we're done. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. See you soon. Bye. You've been listening to Oxide Film. Thank you and good night.